an encouragement and a blessing to churches and, and believers all around the world by spreading a vision of God's wonderful glory, a glory that's attractive, that's all-consuming, that drives a heart full of passion, and a glory that's contagious, that sends us out to the ends of the earth. And you know, the, the methodology, the, the unique thing that, that John Piper and, and Tom Steller have, the methodology that they've pursued in all of their work is just to open the Bible and to clearly declare what it says. And uh, so I, I, I love Tom, got to know him yesterday, and uh, I, I just love the, the, the thing he says about what happened in his life when he got saved is that he, uh, he fell in love with God's Word. And that's what has uh, grown in his life and grown in his ministry. So, Tom, we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say to us. So come on up and share the Word of God with us. The children kindergarten through second grade may be welcome to Children's Church at this time. They'll find that through this door on the left side of the sanctuary at the front. So, Tom. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you, and I especially enjoyed being at the banquet last night, and to just the fellowship, and the food was great, but I think one of the things that moved me most was to hear what God has put on your hearts to do as a, as a congregation, and that is to focus in a special way on the beautiful people a nomadic group of people that do not have the gospel in their language and uh, you have dedicated yourselves as a church to, to invest in the Jesus film to be used as an as a entry point into this people group. And then when you think about what needs to happen with this people is that they need to hear the word of God and then they need to repent and respond. They need the Word of God written in their language. And they need churches planted. And when you think about that, that is a long-term investment that is needed. Last night we also heard the story of a couple that was sent out from Bethlehem back in 1890. Ola and Minnie Hansen were sent to the Kachin people of northern Burma. And they spent 37 years of their life learning the language and translating the language, um, translating the scriptures into their language. And now we've heard that uh, there are over 500,000 Kachins of the 600,000 that are professing Christians. And they look with great favor on the investment of this couple to translate the Word of God. But they couldn't have done it alone. They needed to have a team of people behind them, supporting them, praying for them, and cheering them on. And what I want to do this morning is to look at a very neglected portion of Scripture, which I think has a powerful impact on our lives personally when it comes to our involvement in the missionary endeavor. So I'd like to invite you to turn to 3 John, and we'll look at verses 1 to 8 together. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. Some of you have the NIV. Others, you might have the ESV. They're all wonderful translations. But let me uh, read with you 3 John, verses 1 to 8. It's just two pages before the book of Revelation. You say, where in the world is that little one-page book? It's, uh, it's hard to find sometimes. But two pages before Revelation and you'll find it. 
3 John, verses 1 to 8. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. What I want us to do is to look into this text and uh, to ask the question, what makes this godly old apostle smile? I don't know about you, but I love it. I, I love to be around elderly people, which I am quickly becoming. But uh, I love to be around older people who have lived their life in faithfulness to the Lord and have learned so much through the trials, the hardships, as well as the joys of this life. And they come to the end of their life and, uh, and to say, what makes them smile? What fills them with joy? And that's what we have here. We have this old apostle, John, the beloved disciple, the one that was a fisherman, son of Zebedee, was called by Jesus to come and to be one of His disciples. And He left His nets and He followed Jesus. And He watched Jesus perform His miracles. And He heard Jesus um, teach the Sermon on the Mount. He, heard, he saw Jesus deliver the demonized. And uh, the Last Supper, he's, He was the one that leaned on Jesus' breast. And also the cross, when all the disciples fled, He somehow found His way back and stood by Jesus' mother, and Jesus said, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. So John was an intimate of Jesus. He saw the risen Jesus. He was with Jesus for 40 days between His resurrection and His ascension when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. And then he saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And uh, so here we have John now towards the end of his life. It's probably somewhere in the 90s, right before the turn of the century, in the late part of the first century, probably in Asia Minor. We're not sure where he was, but we think he was in this area. And uh, something happened that caused this old apostle to be filled with joy, so much so that he had to sit down and write a letter. Has that ever happened to you? Something has so moved you, just, you've got to write. And that's what happened to John. So I want to walk with you through this text to find out what makes this godly old apostle so happy, and uh, also to see what implications this might have for us in Missions Week. We don't think of this as a missions text, but I hope you will by the time we're done. So let's begin at the beginning. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So John calls himself simply the elder. Writes to a young man named Gaius, and one thing I just want you to see right away is just the the tone of the Apostle John. He calls him beloved. In your, your version, it might say um, dear friend or something like that. But it's just this term of endearment. 
And he says it again in verse 2. He says it again in verse 5. I think he says it again later on in verse 11 or so. And he just calls Gaius beloved. Beloved. Which I think means a couple things. That he loves Gaius, but also that Gaius' status is to be beloved by God. Gaius is a believer in Jesus and he's loved by the omnipotent God. And he says, whom I love in truth. Another thing you'll notice in this text is truth is repeated again and again and again. You see it in verse 3, twice in verse 3. You'll see it again in verse 8 and, and later on in the epistle. So just we'll come back to that. The elder to the beloved guys whom I love in truth. And then he prays for him in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So John is praying for Gaius that in all respects he might prosper, that he might be successful. And also he prays that he might be in good health. So we don't know much about Gaius. It could be that his business is struggling. Maybe the economy has pushed him out of a job. Maybe uh, some, some disaster has happened. We don't know. We don't know if he's healthy or not. Maybe this is a general blessing on his health. But he also might be sick. Maybe he's... Um, just a sickly man, or maybe there's some disease that has come against him, or some temporary illness, we don't know. But John um, prays for him, that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. But what I want to especially call your attention to is the next clause. It says, just as your soul prospers. Isn't that interesting? His business may or may not be prospering. His health may or may not be prospering. But he prays that they will prosper just as your soul is prospering. The one thing John knew about Gaius was that his soul was prospering. And I've wondered if you've ever thought about that term. It just struck me when I read it a while back. What does it mean to have a prospering soul? And I think it'd be good for us to ask this morning, you know, is my soul prospering? Is your soul prospering? We are in a, in a culture, in a country that just values prosperity to no end. A bill or something was just being signed now to give us a big tax rebate. And the whole hope is that we'll get this big tax rebate and that we'll go out and shop and shop and shop until we drop and we'll stimulate our economy to get it going again. In other words, it's going to help us move us towards this American dream of, of prosperity for all. And, uh, but I think so often in our culture, we lose sight of what it means to have our souls prospering before the Lord. What, our soul, what it means to have your soul prospering. And we know, we've seen enough, we've experienced enough in our own life, and we've seen enough other people where there's not a necessary correlation between a prospering business and a prospering health and a prospering soul. I remember a young man at Bethlehem in the early days of Bethlehem, Jim Lindholm. He, um, as a young boy, just was ever, like every other boy in this choir, just running and jumping and leaping, and eight or nine years old, and all of a sudden... He noticed his legs wouldn't run like they used to and he started falling and tripping and pretty soon it found out he had a degenerative muscle disease. And by the time I came on the scene at Bethlehem, 
He was a 25-year-old man confined to a wheelchair. The only thing he could, could move was his little finger. And he could move his little wheelchair around. And, and, uh, but I've never seen a more prospering soul than Jim Lindholm. He loved the Lord. And he was so thankful about life. And he just blessed us so much until a few years later he choked while he was eating because he couldn't control his neck muscles. But what a testimony of someone who exhibits a prosperity of soul when everything else is, is as far away from prosperity as you can imagine. And so let's ask ourselves, Lord, is my soul prospering the way you want it to? And, and Lord, may, may you use your word this morning even to increase the prosperity of my soul. So anyway, John's, um, John noticed that, that Gaius' soul was prospering. And, uh, and now we need to find out why. What does that mean? What does it look like? And you notice the next verse begins with a conjunction for, which may or may not be in your translation, but it's in the Greek text. It's there. And John says, um, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers for, and now he's going to give the ground or the foundation for why John is confident the evidence that has come to John that shows to John that Gaius' soul is prospering. And he says, For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. So apparently what happened is that some brothers, who they are, we'll find out later, but some brothers came from Gaius, they came back to John and they bore witness of Gaius' truth. And there that word truth is. Gaius' truth. And he says how he is walking in the truth. And walking is a literal reading. It just means living your life in the truth. Living your life according to the truth. Living your life in truth. And what we'll notice for John, that truth is propositional. It's statements of fact about who Jesus is. If anyone says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, um, he's in trouble. In other words, it's propositional. There's truth. It's objective truth that can be communicated. But we also know from John's writing that truth is more than that. Truth includes that. It's more than that. Truth is a person. We see that in John's Gospel where Jesus testifies He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In John's epistles, he talks about the spirit of truth. And he even says the spirit is the truth. And so for John, truth is a huge term. It's the truth about who God is and it's the truth of God Himself. God is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And something made, made John think that Gaius, was, his whole life was consumed with the truth. So let's find out what that is. Verse 5. Oh, verse 4. Look what it says. I love this verse. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Verse 3 says, I was very glad when I heard it. And then he wants to say, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. 
If you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a discipler, if you're a parent, you know what that means. To have your children walking in the truth. There's probably also lots of pain in here too where we have children that, that aren't walking with the Lord. I have five children and four are walking. One isn't. And the one that isn't, there's grief upon grief upon grief. And the four that is, there is joy upon joy upon joy. I remember a time, my oldest daughter, um, she fell in love with the Minnesota Twins back uh, in the early 90s. They had, uh, 1987 and 1991, God healed Minnesota by allowing the Twins to win the World Series after the Vikings lost four, worlds, four Super Bowls in the 70s. So I'm sorry for you guys, but uh, you've won a few more than the Vikings, okay? So we won't talk about that. But, uh, but my daughter fell in love with the twins um, after about around 1992-93. And, and uh, after the twins win the World Series, what happens to all the twins all the time is they... They get glorious and then they can't afford their players anymore and they sell them all to Boston and, and uh, send them to, sell them to New York and just become a ho-hum team again. And This was also right after the strike season. So the twins were at low ebb and my daughter fell in love with the miserable twins. And, uh, and for year, the next few years she just followed them and kept all their stats and, and she loved math so she'd keep batting averages and kept their, the, the, the box score down to the pitch count, you know, and kind of drew me back into interest in the Minnesota Twins. And, um, but it was getting a little obsessive, I thought. And, uh, but one spring, um, I remember uh, she got a phone call. She, had, she was involved in, a, in an evangelistic outreach of our church and going out on Tuesday nights, and, which was so encouraging to me. But on this particular day, a friend of hers called and said, Hannah, I've got tickets to the home opener next Tuesday. Can you come? And she got so excited and she jumped up and down and then she ran to look at her little calendar and oh, it was evangelism night. And so and I was behind the corner. She didn't know I was listening. And I watched her go back to the phone and she said, you know, I'd really like to go, but uh, I'm going out and doing evangelism that night. And my heart just leapt. You know, the idolatry of the twins was pushed down and the Lord was taking his proper place and I had no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. So John felt that way about Gaius. He heard something about Gaius that filled this old apostolic crinkly face with a big smile, so much so that he had to write. So let's find out what that was. Verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. So here these brethren show up. You saw them in verse 3. The brethren came and bore witness to your truth. And John hears that Gaius is somehow acting faithfully in whatever he's accomplishing for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. So these brethren who came back to testify to John, so when we went to Gaius, he loved us. He acted faithfully toward us. And uh, even though they were strangers... And this just makes me reflect on what an amazing thing it is to be a part of the body of Christ. You know, here I come to South Shore Baptist Church, um, show up yesterday. I don't think I knew a soul in this church. And, uh, and went to the Hess's house and they've treated me like a, 
a king and people taking me out to dinner and to lunch. I've never eaten so much in, in three meals in one day as I did this weekend. And, uh, but just loving on me and just the connection that I feel with you. And I haven't met most of you face to face. But if you love Jesus, there's a connection. And if you've ever served on the mission field, if, if you've gone overseas or even gone to other places, other churches, you may have had that experience where this, this person shouldn't trust me at all. They don't know who I am. And they just come in and they let you give you the key to their house and you just come in. And, and uh, whether I'm in a, a hut in Guinea, West Africa, or up in a village in northern Burma or wherever it is, if I meet Christians... I'm just amazed again and again at the connection because we're united to Christ. Even if we speak different languages, there is a connection. And Gaius knew that. When he, his brethren came to him, even though they were strangers, he loved on them and acted faithfully toward them. Let's find out more. Verse 6 says, And they bear witness to your love before the church. Okay, so this witness that was talked about in verse 3, we've got a little bigger picture of it now, is that apparently what happened was that these brethren who had gone to Gaius, they came back to their church where John was involved, maybe as a leader, as a pastor, an elder, apostle for sure, and, uh, and these brethren at a church gathering, whether it was a Wednesday night prayer meeting or a Sunday evening love feast, whatever it was, they stood up and they testified before the church of how this man named Gaius loved them and welcomed them. But now we find out who they are. Look at 6b through 8. This is now John's admonition to Gaius. And he says, You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For... They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Verse 7 reveals who these brethren were. I think verse 7 is perhaps the best definition of missionary in the Bible. A missionary is one who goes out for the sake of the name. That same word for go out is found in Acts 14.20 and Acts 15.40 where it talks about Paul going out to his next place in his missionary journeys. And these, these are missionaries. They go out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So you know what they're doing. They're going out for the sake of the name. They're going out to champion the name of Jesus Christ. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Jesus said... He said, freely you have given, freely you have received, freely give. So when you go out in evangelism and in missions, we do not charge for the gospel. Unlike the sophists of the day, who these Greek philosophers who would go out and wax eloquent on the street corners in Corinth and other places and hold out their, their violin covers and wait for donations to come to, to pay for their, their teaching. Not so with the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is freely given. To be sure, when churches are planted, it's right for churches to support their leaders. But when you're planning the church, when you're evangelizing, you just give the gospel 
free. And yet these people are just like you and me. They're bags of bones that need to be supported, they need to be fed, they need to be clothed, they need to have a house, they need to have health care, they need to have whatever they need so that they can live for the sake of the gospel. I also want to call your attention, though, to what I think is so beautiful about this definition. John is choosing to identify these missionaries in light of what what motivates them, what compels them. They go out for the sake of the name. In other words, these first century missionaries and itinerant evangelists were so enthralled with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They saw the gospel. They experienced the gospel. They understood that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, that apart from Christ, no matter how prosperous they might look, apart from Jesus Christ, their soul wasn't prospering. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. And they heard the gospel of free grace, that if we simply hold our hands open and receive by faith and not by works the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, that God put our sins on the shoulders of Jesus and uh, sent Him to the cross as a sacrificial lamb so that God's righteous wrath could be satisfied. And that as we get united to Jesus Christ by faith, we are clothed with His righteousness and God can look down at us and say, you are accepted in the Beloved. You are accepted. You are forgiven. Everything is new. That's the Gospel. And it glorifies God. And these missionaries were gripped by the name of Jesus Christ. The name above every other name. That there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And so they went out to champion the name of Jesus Christ. They went out for the sake of the name. But I want you to see here is that these brethren that came to Gaius, and Gaius treated them well and helped them in a wide variety of ways, it wasn't that these people were the first string. And Gaius and everyone like Gaius was a second string. Sometimes, you know, in a missions conference, you kind of wonder. I remember before I was converted to world Christianity, I was converted to Christianity when I was 17. I was converted to world Christianity when I was 24. In other words, I went seven years where missions was, it was important. You know, of course I'm not against missions and, and uh, I'm, I'm for missions. Um, I'm so glad I'm not called in that department of the church. I'm, I'm doing this over here. I'm teaching and discipling and all of that. But uh, it was in 1983 that by God's grace, my eyes were open to how central missions was in Scripture. You know, you study the Bible systematically and oftentimes missions isn't one of the systematic categories. But if you study the Bible on a timeline of biblical theology, you realize that that everything is moving towards a grand grand climax where every tribe and tongue and people and nation is going to be worshiping the Lord forever. And it all starts back in Genesis chapter 1 even in chapter 
3, where in Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, and you begin to see in the Bible that this is just the, the golden thread of the Bible. That God is seeking worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. In 1983, my eyes were open to that. And, uh, but prior to that, I always thought, you know, missionaries, they were the spiritual giants. Everyone else was second class. But this text will not let you think that way. So let's look at the flow of thought here as we come to a close. It says, look at, look at the flow. He says to Gaius, you will do well. And the word for well is beautifully. It's a beautiful thing. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. And for those that wash those feet are lovely as well. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. The word send there is a technical term. In the New Testament, it occurs nine times, and every time it's in the context of helping a Christian worker get from point A to point B for the sake of the gospel. He says, you will do well to send them on their way. But it was that next phrase that just landed on me in 1987. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. It says, you will send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. I knew a missionary from Mexico who said to me, he said, Tom, there's a big difference between a church that has missionaries, maybe their names are on the back of the bulletin or whatever, and a church that sends missionaries. And that's all he said. But when I saw this text, it made sense. You will do well to send them on their way, how? In a manner worthy of God. A manner worthy of God. A manner that fits with the greatness of God. In other words, no more shoddy sending. No more forgetful sending. No more neglectful sending. But rather, a sending that is holistic. A sending that is real. And makes a huge difference in the lives of those that go out for the sake of the name. But what you see in this text is that... um, that's a crucial ministry. Look at the connection between 7 and 8. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, such people. We ought to support them. And I don't know if you're like me. When I was growing up, um, anytime I heard words like ought and should, ooh, don't, don't put that on me. And uh, it's because my experience growing up was I grew up in a very religious environment, and, uh, but everything was external. I went to church because if I didn't go to church that Sunday, it was considered a mortal sin. Better go to church. Um, and, uh, um, but something happened to me when I was 17. God gave me this new heart. He opened my eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I began to see that I can't save myself by doing good works. I... That, 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 that rather God does everything for me. And my whole view of Him changed. It says in, in, in the New Covenant text that God takes out our heart of stone, He puts in a heart of flesh, He writes His law on our hearts. In other words, He changes our disposition so that we have a whole new orientation to God. And we see that the commands of God are not bad news to squelch your joy and everything you want to do, God says, thou shalt not. But when God changes our heart, all of a sudden, we begin to realize that when God commands us something, it's for His greatest glory and for our greatest joy. So now when I see the Bible, I see commands, I don't run away. 
I say, Lord, tell me. You say, jump. I say, how high, Lord, how high? And here the text is, you ought to support such people. That is a command of Almighty God, with Almighty God's authority behind it, and Almighty God's provision and promised blessing. It is a great blessing to be commanded by God to link arms with those that go out for the sake of the name. So don't let that ought turn you away. Feel the weight of it. It's something personally to be embraced by every one of us. But look at the flow of thought. They went out for the sake... You'll do well to send them in a manner worthy of God. Why? Because they go out for the sake of the name. Therefore, we ought to support such people. That is, those who go out for the sake of the name. Why? That we may be fellow workers with the truth. In God's economy, there are not two levels, namely the really spiritual missionaries and then the second-class citizens of all of us who stay home and just live our normal lives and maybe pay some money just so we don't feel so guilty. That's not God's way at all. In God's mind, the goer and the sender are of equal importance in the economy of God. Both are valued. Because look at how they're united. The, the, the goer goes out for the sake of the name and the sender sends in a manner worthy of God. And together, we are fellow workers with the truth. It's a beautiful thing. Paul or John says to guys, he says, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. In other words, there's a whole range of ways to get behind those that go out for the sake of the name. A whole variety of ways that accord with your gifts and how God has wired you up. And I just love it in our church when I see people supporting our missionaries in ways I never would have thought. I mean, our missionaries, as they're going to the field, I mean, childcare, babysitting for missionary families. You know, they're getting ready to go to, to Senegal or they're getting ready to go to Myanmar or someplace. Boy, give them some time the husband and the wife, just to nurture their marriage and love that, love on their kids, give them a break and help them pack their bags, help them uh, get their house ready to sell or to rent or whatever it is. We're on the field, communicate with them, send them emails, send them packages, even if the packages don't quite make it. I remember when I got to Cameroon, my family and I went to Cameroon, and, and uh, when we got there, uh, my ministry assistant had sent a package way ahead of time so it would be there when we got there. And there it was waiting for us. And uh, we were so blessed, even though it had been opened and gutted by the, the corrupt postal service. So the Kool-Aid was all dumped out and the candy wrappers were left in and the kids' pictures were crumpled. And, but boy, what a blessing. What a blessing. You know, so find creative ways to assist your missionaries. Ways when they come home on home assignment or they're ending their term or whatever, how do you help them get re-enculturated re, uh, into the, the life of the church and the life of the community? And There's a zillions of ways that we can help. And, and just let your creative juices flow and listen to your missionaries. Let them tell you if this isn't helpful, but this is really helpful. And uh, so just be listening people and helping people. But the beauty here is that both the goer and the sender are united in the purpose of God, in being fellow workers with the truth. And as I look over this congregation, um, I know that, that God has already sent some of you out. Some of you are back for a season. 
and home assignment and others of you already feel like this God is leading you to go to an unreached people or go to a missionary endeavor and uh, you know that that's happening. And uh, so some of you will go as goers. Some of you who have no clue that you'll go, God is going to surprise you. One of my dear friends, Dave Decker, he was a footlocker manager and just living his life so happy and he was absolutely ruined during one of these mission conferences. His life was changed forever, totally out of the blue from his perspective. And now he's been in West Africa for 20 years, loving it, never having imagined that being in his future. So be prepared that some of you will be goers. Probably the majority of you will be senders. There are two people in this text. There's goers and there's senders. And they both have equal value. But you senders, I want and pray that you will take your role very seriously in terms of praying for those that go out and supporting them in practical ways and whatever you can do. And you might not be able to reach all the missionaries this church sends out, but maybe find one or two that you will really go after and love. And the beautiful thing about the senders is that you're also goers. God has planted you here for a purpose. And missions, evangelism is reaching people like you for the gospel. And we should all be doing that. Missions is crossing cultures to reach people for the gospel. And I believe God is giving all of us opportunities to do that as well. God has planted you in an area of the world where the world is just flooding into your territory. It's not your territory, it's God's territory and He is bringing them in. My neighborhood where I grew up is now 40% Somali Muslim. And I praise God that God has brought one of the largest unreached people groups to my doorstep and to Bethlehem's doorstep and to watch the people of Bethlehem rise up and to welcome these people. People said they, could, they will never come into your, the door of your church. We've got 80 people involved in ESL courses um, coming to our church every day of the week, just about. And uh, they haven't, there's not been the breakthrough yet, but we're praying that God will open the eyes of Somalis to see the love of Jesus Christ. So, you senders are right here as salt and light, sending those who will go far away accepting nothing for the Gentiles, They need your prayer, they need your support, they need your money, they need whatever practical means that you can give them. But you are right here as salt and light and also as goers across the street, across the neighborhood, across the city, into the heart of the city, wherever God would lead you. And uh, and together, you are all fellow workers with the truth. And there is no greater joy than to be a fellow worker with the truth. We don't have to work to earn anything from our God. Everything is freely given to us. We're not trying to pay Him back. You can't pay God back. He is infinitely rich. But God has given us the dignity of causality. He's given us the joy of partnering with Him in the greatest mission of the universe. God created the world so that this earth would be filled with His glory as the waters cover the sea and people from every tribe and tongue will, will come to value Him supremely and worship Him with all their heart. And we have a role to play in helping that to happen in our families, our neighborhoods, our city, our country, our world. And so just pray, Lord, show me what this week should look like. Show me what five years should look like when I need to know it. I'll trust my life to You.
I want to close with reading two quotes. From, uh, one's from a goer and one's from a cinder. And the goer was David Livingstone, uh, not the guy that preached last week, um, a different one. Um, this is the David Livingstone who was an a-, a missionary in Africa and opened up so much of Africa for the gospel. Um, you remember D- Dr. Livingstone, I presume, was the question that uh, was asked him when he was, had been lost for a long time and they send out people to find him and, and uh, he was a, a wild man. But uh, in 1857, he was toward the end of his missionary career and, and uh, he was writing and people were reading and he became a hero. And he goes to Cambridge, England, and, uh, and he's nervous about how people are just congratulating him and exalting him, and he didn't want anything to do with that. So he says, this is what he said. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office, namely to be a missionary. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa, Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory with which, which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. And now here's a testimony from a sender. J. Campbell White. He was the secretary of the Layman's Missionary Movement in 1909, he, he wrote this. And that was a, the Layman's Missionary Movement. There was a huge missions uh, renewal at that time. And the mis- Layman's Missionary Movement were businessmen that united around these missionaries and got behind their work in all kinds of ways. And this was J. Campbell's White's purpose was to stimulate people to be senders. And uh, he says this. He says, most people are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Those who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. So may the Lord cause our souls to prosper like Gaius's. Let's pray together. Father, we just confess that we are so shaped by our culture and by the media to love the things of this world and to think that we need this thing or that thing to fill the gap in our life. Lord, many in this room have discovered long ago that things will not fill up the hole, that only You can fill the hole in our hearts. And we thank You, Jesus, that You have come 
into our lives, that you've taken our sin away and you are dwelling within us. And Lord, we want to work with you now with the strength that you supply to labor for your great purpose of filling this earth with your glory as the waters cover the sea. Lord, I pray for the effort here right now to focus on the beautiful people and to get the Jesus film into their language. I pray that you will prosper this project, Lord, and that you will bring every resource that's needed for this to happen. And I pray, Lord, that it will be used of you to, to draw the beautiful people to yourself and to um, establish churches among them. And then they too will be involved in being fellow workers with the truth. So Lord, take your word now and cause it to go deep within us. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, that only in you does our soul prosper. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as each of us considers how we might go 